Oh, let's get it. Monday, March 8th. 2021, Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, a podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. Last couple weeks have uh, been pretty taxing. See the pun from the previous couple weeks, but we got him. We got Secretary McDonough's interview in the can. Uh, got to speak with him for about an hour. Um, we were able to cover a lot of ground. First video episode of Born the Battle, uh, by the way. Uh, I went into town and we did it at the VA Central Office Studio. Hope to do more video versions of Born the Battle in the future. Uh, and I appreciate the Secretary volunteering as uh, as tribute for the first video version of Born the Battle. And you'll find it on YouTube. Uh, it's slated to come out. On my personal 100th episode of hosting Born the Battle, episode 235, not counting the bonus episodes that we've done. Man, I can't believe it's already been 100 episodes. Time flies. Received a couple ratings and one new review. You know, I knew it was going to happen eventually. Uh, We had a good, I don't know how long have we been the host of this, good year and a half run but uh, recently, Born the Battle received its first one-star review since I've been the host. You know, I was given advice by other veterans, uh, not by VA, but by other veterans, to to just ignore it and move on. But, you know, I've responded to everyone so far, and I think it would be disingenuous to not respond since we're only getting one every couple of weeks or so. Uh, he took the time to write the review, so I want to take the time to respond. This one is from P. Soren423, one star. This podcast is bought and paid for by the VA, and it uses a cute little toy veteran as its host. I listened to the episode for VR&E. Let me explain the entirety of the podcast is propaganda. Not one instance of the host or the director speaking actually is how this program works. In addition to the programs, VR&E counselors being gatekeepers, not actually licensed clinicians. I mean, that makes sense to me. It's more of social work. It's a more of a benefits program slash social work program, not uh, not healthcare. They will do everything they can to provoke veterans during the interview process. They will and have asked thousands of veterans to email PII over non-secure emails to these program gatekeepers. They're not actually aware of the laws and requirements of the program. Thus, they will lie and manipulate the veteran every chance they get. Example. The first time I applied, I was told that assisted everyday living was all I was able to receive. They then sent me a letter removing me from the program. Nothing the director said happened. I received no in-home assistance, no rehabilitation assistance, absolutely no equipment support. I just had my second interview under the same program with the new title VR&E, where the counselor was unaware for over a week that my paperwork was scanned into my file and had no idea the VA was using a central fax line. Then she informed me that because I had zero months of post-9-11 GI Bill, I would not be able to go to college. According to the program director of VBA Houston, that is a lie. According to the VBA national director, that is a lie. But for us peasants on the ground floor, these lies and propaganda are all that we live with. Like community care and no white lines longer than a month. Okay, so we're going off the actual episode. It took two months to get community care for medicine to be placed into my intrarethal pain pump. I've been waiting 14 days for an emergency referral for a dental abscess. 
save yourself the time of listening to this podcast, pray the country fixes it, or pray no one ever has to suffer the indignity of having the military ruin their lives and then be stuck dealing with socialist Russia politics and programs of the VA. So I'm not going to respond to the personal attacks. That is what it is. Um, And I wish that you've listened to more than one episode before reviewing it. That's okay. I do want to unpack a couple of things. First, yes, this is a podcast funded by VA. I say that right off the top of the show. Don't hide it. But part of that agreement I had early on when I took over this podcast was that nobody, not my supervisor, not my supervisor's supervisor, dictates who or what I cover on this podcast. They can pitch, and many have. Uh, Many nonprofits have pitched. Many veterans have pitched. But nobody has ever dictated what I put on this podcast. Uh, and I've told the powers that be that if I was de- if I was going to do this, I, I wanted to cover what I want and who I want and that the focus was always going to be veterans and that if a guest was ever dictated to me, I'm going to go back to producing videos. My focus will always be telling inspiring stories, getting information to veterans and exploring VA programs, offices, benefits and direct leadership from a veteran's perspective and reporting to you, the listener, what I find. Peace Orn, I do appreciate you sharing your experience with the program as another did on episode 230's blog on blogs.va.gov. And I actually encourage that. Uh, Please, you know, email me your concerns about the PII. I've never heard of that. Uh, You know, I, I would need times, dates, names, where and when, and I'll see if I can get it forwarded to someone that, that can do some actual digging into it. Um, again, my email is podcast at va.gov. As for the one month of the GI Bill part of eligibility, that's what Mr. Streitberger told me in the podcast episode. Um, and you've heard that you can be eligible for the program with zero months. You know, I don't want to be wrong. And I want to be as accountable and as transparent as I can. Um, I don't want to be wrong and give veterans the, the wrong info. And if I do, Best believe me, I'll say it right here on this podcast. And I would say something like, you know, hey, you know, on podcast X, we were talking about benefit A with subject matter expert B. And, you know, actually the benefit eligibility was C. So uh, my apologies. Uh, You know, it's been corrected in the podcast episode and we're saying it right here just to let you know, hey, that was bum info, that was bum scoop, uh, but we got it fixed. Um. So I went back to benefits.va.gov forward slash voc rehab and I clicked on the left-hand side where it says eligibility and entitlement and it doesn't say anything about how many months you need. Under eligibility, it says you can't have a dishonorable discharge and you must have a service-connected disability of at least 10% from the VA and your basic period of eligibility ends 12 years from the date you either received your notice of your separation from active duty or from your first VA service-connected disability. For entitlement, it gets into the barrier of entry for an industry and all that. So I didn't see one month. I didn't see zero months. So can I tell you right here, right now, that I know definitively which one it is? No, because I heard directly from the director of the program that you need one month. But best believe me, I'm going to be emailing some folks, and I appreciate you bringing me a different point of view from the field, from the ground. And I'm going to be emailing some folks and I'm going to find out and I'm going to let you know what I find. As for the community care issues, first time I've heard that it's taken longer than two months. 
However, I personally haven't done any community care since COVID popped up. Uh, I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons uh, not deeming life-threatening and all that. I, I heard for a while that if it wasn't life-threatening, you weren't getting seen, and then that there were some there were some issues to work out with that as well. Uh, for the dental abscess and all that, man, let's talk. Uh, shoot me an email, podcast at va.gov. Uh, there are patient advocates. There is the Veterans Experience Office. There are some places we can go and advocate to see if we can do something about that if you're not already getting seen. Again, uh, wish you would listen to more podcast episodes before submitting a review, uh, but I get it, uh, and I'm going to do the best that I can to help you out. As always, I appreciate the feedback every week, and if you're so inclined, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a good way to communicate directly with our podcast here and help get the podcast recognized by more veterans in podcast land at the same time. News releases, I got three for you this week. First one says, for immediate release, on the first day of Women's History Month, the Department of Veterans Affairs launched efforts to increase women veterans' participation in VA's Million Veteran Program to aid in genetic research focused on women's health issues. Now, it doesn't say how or what efforts. Um, I'm sure you'll see signage or something. But part of that effort is that they did reach out to me uh, for a podcast episode for a benefits breakdown, but it was a little late in my booking cycle for a benefits breakdown, but I can at least let you know they actually did have representatives do a podcast episode on another podcast out in podcast land called the Combat Divas Podcast. Uh, They did a full episode about the Million Veteran Program. Appreciate the fact that that, uh, they linked up with the VA and with subject matter experts from the VA and talked about it. Uh, Really cool. Uh, MVP is currently researching genetic and clinical markers to predict breast cancer research in women veterans. With increased participation, research could focus on investigating treatments and preventions of diseases that affect women veterans, including depression, hypertension, heart disease, osteoarthritis, and others. Since 2011, more than 830,000 veterans have joined the Million Veteran Program allowing researchers to learn how differences in genes, lifestyle, and military experiences affect veterans' health and illness. Currently, women veterans represent about 9% of the over 830,000 million veteran program cohort. Participation in MVP is entirely voluntary, and veterans go through an informed consent process to ensure the Million Veteran Program is right for them. To learn more about enrolling in the Million Veteran Program, go to mvp.va. Gov, or call 1-866-441-6075. All right. The next one is good news for some pocketbooks. Says for immediate release, all veterans insured under the Veterans Group Life Insurance will receive a reduction in premiums effective April 1st. Premiums for VGLI will be reduced by an average of 7% across all age groups, allowing more separating service members, say that three times fast, to continue their service members' group life insurance coverage level as a renewable term insurance policy after leaving service. That is a mouthful. While any separating service member who has SGLI coverage upon separation is eligible to sign up for VGLI after separation, they must submit their application and initial premium within 240 days after leaving the military to apply without proof of good health. Those who apply after the 240-day period but before the deadline of one year and 120 days from separation, will need to submit proof of good health 
by completing a questionnaire regarding medical conditions. So one year, three months. Additionally, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, VA is temporarily extending the application deadlines for VGLI by an additional 90 days beyond the initial 240-day period and the one-year and 120-day period referenced above to offer more flexibility to separating service members. This enrollment extension will remain in effect until June of 2021. To read the new VGLI rates, calculate your insurance need, learn more about VA life insurance, or to apply and open an application, go to benefits.va.gov forward slash insurance. Okay, and the last one says, the Department of Veterans Affairs launched an organized effort to assist the prevention of hospital-acquired pneumonia in VA and private hospitals across the country. Each year, it is estimated that more than 35 million patients in the U.S. are at risk for non-ventilator-associated hospital-acquired pneumonia at a cost of roughly $3 billion a year. The effort known as the National Organization for NVHAP Prevention, NOHAP, encourages patients to practice consistent oral hygiene as a simple measure to aid in the prevention of hospital-acquired pneumonia. Other members, I didn't know this was a thing. Other members of the NOHAP group include representatives from the Joint Commission, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, American Dental Association, Patient Safety Movement Foundation, and various organizations from the private sector and academia. $3 billion. Incredible. To learn more about NOHAP, go to www.va.gov forward slash innovative ecosystem forward slash views forward slash solutions forward slash national hyphen organization dot html. Towards the bottom of the page, they have some resources and education on the subject. All right, so this week's guest is a former KC-135 navigator that was one of the first crews to support the patrolling and enforcement of Iraq's no-fly zone during Operation Southern Watch. She also served as a military liaison officer at the U.S. Embassy in Quito, Ecuador, leading a multi-service team in counter-narcotic operation support. When she got out, she became a global marketer for a major telecommunications brand then became an entrepreneur, writing a book on entrepreneurship, then turned in an award-winning and White House-recognized bilingual children's book, where she was both the author and publisher. As part of her portfolio, she is also a personal brand consultant, helping with her lessons learned to help other veterans pursue and chase the careers that they want. She is Air Force veteran Graciela Tiscareño Sato. Enjoy. So we are recording and we are live. Graciela, did I get it right? You did. Thank All you. Right. <laughs> Thank Welcome you. to Born the Battle. Thanks so much for having me, Tanner. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Um, okay. You know, for the first bit of when I started this podcast, I, I don't think I had any authors on the show, but lately I've had G. Michael Hoff, Jack Carr, John Del Vecchio, and you. Uh, now it, it's starting to become a normal type of guest. And I love it because- you know, authors and great authors are the basis of so many other mediums, film, television, video games. Yeah. A lot of it is adapted from literature. 
And I've never had a children's author on the podcast before, so you're you're already breaking ground. Wow. Well, thank you. Yes. And it's true, right? I mean, I, I tell my kids this all the time. It's like, you know, that movie we just watched, someone write a book. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, you know, we, our imagination is the origin of many things, fiction and nonfiction. So thank you for acknowledging that. I really appreciate it. And um, it's, it's a craft, but it's something that, you know, those of us who, who actually do it and actually go all the way to publication, it's something that it fuels us. There's always a mission behind it. Yep. Thank you. No, absolutely. I, you know, as you know, as an artist, as a video producer, you always look at where origins of stories come from, and a, a lot of it is within, you know, writing comic books, etc. So, right. absolutely. Um, well, before your writing career, you were an Air Force officer, and here on Born the Battle, we usually start with that very first time that you knew that the military was going to be the next stage of your life. When was that for you? Ooh, and I love how you asked that question. That's cool. Because well, some people, because some people don't choose that life. Some people were drafted, right? Yeah, yeah. Or some people, it was suggested for them in lieu of some other path that exactly. wasn't so positive for them. Exactly. No, my okay, I my story is really weird, and I think the the best, most concise way to answer that question is set the scene. I'm a high school junior. You know, I was just starting my senior year and I was always in my high school counselor's office saying, how do I go to college? You know, I'm the firstborn daughter of five children born to Mexican immigrants. Um, We don't have trust funds. You know, my friends are all talking about college. How can I go? I'm being told that I can, that there's a way, Um, you know, I'm born here in Texas, so an American citizen. And I just, you know, we don't have money and we don't have knowledge about how college happens in my immigrant community. So my story starts there. And so the setting is I'm in my counselor's office and God bless her, Virginia Burgess. She said, you know, I want you to come to my house for dinner and meet my husband. And his family was even bigger than yours. He grew up in Appalachia with eight siblings. I only had four. Only. Uh, exactly. And he said, I, I know, I'm like, what? And she said, you know, come to my house for dinner, meet Wendell, and he will tell you how he did it, how he went to college. Yeah. And Tanner, that is when I met Air Force Major Wendell Burgess, Air Force ROTC scholarship graduate. That's how he went. And she invited me to her house for dinner to meet her husband. So talk about the power of, you know, being listened to, being mentored, and then actually putting somebody in my path, you know, to tell me the how. Because just telling me that it's possible, that was like, okay, great. But unless you tell me the how, I still don't know. And that's that was it for me. I went over to her house and he explained to me the whole pathway to, you know, what the scholarship application looks like, the physical part, the interview with a whole bunch of officers part. You know, I had never met a military officer. Are you kidding me? So that was like going to court. You know, you walk into this room and there's like, you know, is that a university? And there was like this brown I was like testifying at Congress, right? They're elevated up a couple <laughs> steps. They're in their blues. And here comes this teenage girl that you know, I'm getting interviewed by all these officers, but he told me, he prepped me all of that. So for me, the moment that I knew was after I had met him and I thought, well, that's it, right? That's the ticket. Like, you know, go to get into college that I want and, you know, hopefully get the scholarship for all four years, but maybe it'll be three, maybe it'll be two. 
Yeah. But, you know, so going through it, but the moment that I knew was when I got the letter in the mail, February of my senior year that said, congratulations, you know, you've been accepted to University of California, Berkeley. And then that same day in the mailbox was the letter notifying me that I've been awarded the four-year ROTC scholarship. Wow. Full ride. Full ride. But that's when I knew. And so I always like to say, you know, the Air Force found me through my counselor's husband. I wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go to the Air Force because I didn't know any of that. I did not know. And I was the kid in the cafeteria who, when the army recruiters came to the cafeteria to recruit, as they do, I was like, oh, they want me to go into the army and I want to go to college. I was so set on college. I needed to find out the how. So that's my unusual answer. Thank God for my high school counselor. And she happened to be married to an Air Force major. I, I don't think it's so unusual because I think it seems like anybody who has ever been put down a path always has that mentor. They've always, someone's always found them or, or seek, somehow yeah. there was a meeting of the mind that, that puts you down that path. So no, I don't think that's a, that's an unusual answer at, at all. Um, where out in Texas were you at? Well, I was born in El Paso. I was born 0.25 miles north of the border. That's where my parents were living when I was born. My father was a tailor. And then very quickly after I was born, we moved to Tucson, Arizona. And then apparently I was a sick baby who hated the desert. <laughs> and so they went to the other extreme where they moved to the foothills of Colorado. So I actually grew up in northern Colorado, the Greeley-Evans area. Okay. And my siblings were all born there. So I'm a Colorado girl. Yep. Very good. Very good. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many, uh, you know, high school kids may listen to this podcast, but what do you think – Obviously, you were competing for a four-year scholarship, and you eventually went to Cal um, on a, on a four-year scholarship. What do you think set yourself up for that success in that environment in front of those officers? How did you prepare yourself? Yeah, well, I, that's I come back to the role playing and the interviews. You know, the the kind of questions I would be asked that Major Burgess put me through. Um, otherwise, if he hadn't done that, I can tell you I would have just been so intimidated. Yeah. And I would, I mean, like talk about a fish out of water. It's like literally a 17-year-old girl who, you know, speaks Spanish at home and is got this plan that she's going to go to college <laughs> to yeah. a school she's never seen. Um, I think what set me apart is I had a lot of leadership experiences in high school. They asked me a lot about, you know, why did you think that you could be the captain of the volleyball team? You know, what made you think that you could do that? They'd ask me very pointed questions like that to see, you know, okay, I see that you're the captain of the volleyball team, but, you know, so is everybody else who's applying for a scholarship, yeah, right? Yeah. So like what makes you different? So they would ask you the, what made you think that you could do that? And so those kind of questions and those kind of answers about, what was in my mind that made me think I could do those things, obviously, as I now know, is core to what makes you think you can successfully complete college, what makes you think you can successfully, you know, compete with other men and women in a ROTC program, right? And then ultimately, yeah. you know, in flight training. And so the kind of questions they were asking to to why did I think I could was really to explore my self-confidence, uh, to explore how I approached things, how I thought things out. Yeah. Um, that, but you know, there was one question that they asked, and this is for anybody who is going to go down this path. I'm certain they still ask this question because I mentor young women who, who are pursuing these scholarships. They're still asking this question. And I, again, think of 
who I was at the time. They said, you know, are you a conscientious objector? Interesting. <laughs> so I'm sitting here like, uh, please define conscientious objector. <laughs> I feel like I was in a spelling bee. You know, how do you spell that? For those of you have, that have not seen the Desmond Doss movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there and they asked me this question and I said, well, um, I don't know if I am. Can you please tell me what that is? You know, so again, it's just very honest. Yeah. And one of them told me, you know, they said something along the lines of, well, you know, conscientious objectors are people who think they want to go in the military. But then when they find themselves in a situation where they actually might have to fire upon the enemy or, you know, possibly take a life, they suddenly object to doing it. And I remember, you know, like look, getting a puzzled look on my face and looking at them. And I said, well, wait, if I was a conscientious objector, why would I be looking to enter the military? And then one of the officers was like, exactly. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, moments like that where you're like so young and you don't know things and they're asking you. So but no, um, you know, I was prepared because of Major Burgess, who is holding my hand through this whole thing. So, so you know, so with all things being equal, great grades, leadership positions in high school, and I, and this and I might be a teacher that might listen to this too. How do you how do you prepare a kid for for ROTC scholarship? So, it took it, what it took is from what I'm hearing is a strong mentor that prepared you constantly for the next right. steps. Yeah, because you don't you don't do any of these really hard things, these competitive things, these things where literally you have to stand out, right? Yeah. You have to tell your story. You don't do those things by yourself because maybe you accomplished it all, but it's getting confident enough and being ready to communicate those things. That's where that mentorship is absolutely imperative, especially from someone who sparked the path before you. And that made yeah. the difference in my life. It literally changed everything. I love that we're in, you know, as we, you know, we're veterans now ourselves. We're not the, the 18 year old high school kid. We, we're now in the positions now where we can affect that on the next generation. I think if you're listening to this now, you can definitely look to yourself as, as being that for somebody. Well, Tanner, that moment and that mentorship changed my life. I mean, it changed the entire trajectory yeah. of everything, right? So everything I do now is about that, is about showing up and being that mentor and, showing up and saying, yeah, people like you, people like me, we do this and this. And then the key part, this is how we do it because yep. that's what was done for me. It's literally because of all that that happened back then. I think it's a common ground for successful people is to have a good mentor, you know, helping them with every step of the way, uh, engage leadership, that type of thing. Right. right. And, and, you know, but the key thing is for teachers, parents, you know, veterans listening that have teens that are thinking about this. I, I like to talk in a way that it's a miracle. I can't believe he was put in my way. And isn't this great? But and people always stop me, Tanner, and they say, can you please stop and give yourself some credit? You yeah. were the kid in the counseling office asking your counselor, how do I go to college? How is this possible? Yeah. Because you asked the questions, she was able to offer you that resource that her husband and his knowledge if you don't ask the questions, if you're not seeking the knowledge, if you're not showing up wanting to know how, then it won't come for you. And so that's an important part of my story as well. Fair enough. That's the question. Yep. Fair, fair enough. Okay. So ended up being a, a KC-135 refueler pilot, uh, spent some time in Fairchild. I am a native Washingtonian myself. So uh, I, that was, I saw that in your bio. I was like, oh, okay. Now I was from the west side of the state. Not many people realize that down the middle of Oregon and Washington, that they're two completely separate. They are. It's almost like Texas. Mm -hmm. West Texas on the east side of this on the east side of the state. When you compare it to the 
what people traditionally think of Washington state as the evergreen state, which would be the West side. Right. Right. Did All you- the time. And it's a quick, uh, quick clarity. Um, I was not a pilot. I was a navigator, the case oh, 35 okay. at the time. Uh, and, and still in some units it was a four person airplane. And so the navigator is the person in charge of all the mission timing and, you know, affecting the rendezvous with any airplanes coming up to get gas. So my okay. job was literally to be the airborne mathematician, or as my husband likes to say, the professional backseat driver doing the math. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's, <laughs> That's kind of a way to think about it. That's outstanding. Uh, was, is it now, is he a pilot? My husband has the t-shirt uh, that says toughest job in the Air Force, Air Force husband. Very good. So, very so good. no. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, now, but, uh, you know, with your, with looking at your career, it looks like you had, you had quite the globe trotting career. If, if I don't, if I, if I do say so. Oh yeah. It was, it was interesting reading about your experiences flying in the no fly zone in Southern Iraq during desert storm or after desert storm, which is immediately, immediately okay. after desert storm. Yeah. Which is, 30, which is 30 years ago this year, know, probably, just- probably, probably this month. 30 years ago, you were in that, in that arena. We just marked that anniversary, didn't we? We just marked it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We just had uh, Scott Stump, who is the director of the v- uh, Desert Storm Memorial uh, on the podcast uh, yeah. talking about it. So uh, yeah. if you're interested in, in the Desert Storm Memorial and you listen to this, go ahead and check out that episode. Well, and it's amazing that, you know, in only 30 years <laughs> that we're talking about a Desert Storm Memorial versus that it takes, you know, a century to get a memorial. So yeah. hallelujah to that progress. Yeah, no, they're breaking ground next year, I think. Yeah, it's awesome. Now you flew there after the war, but before Congress lifted the combat exclusion law that barred women from being assigned to combat duties, mm-hmm. but you were kind of in a combat role. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's, I read that this almost prevented your crew from receiving the air, from receiving the air medal. Uh, for the time over there. Oh yeah. Correct. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's one of those moments in history that you can't believe happened that way. But you know, there I was, as we aviators like to say, there I was. Yeah. Um, it was my first deployment. It was my first deployment. So literally, uh, the night that uh, the war started, the night the shooting started over Baghdad, I was in the air and we were doing a night navigation check ride. So I was actually on a check ride toward the end of the program when okay. the shooting started. So we knew. I mean, you're on a check ride, you're about to finish the program, and now there's a war. So we pretty much knew that we're going to be going over there, quote unquote, at some point. But what actually ended up happening is the follow-on school where you actually train on the KC-135, you know, once we select our assignments, they shut the school down so they could take all the pilots and navigators who were there and boom operators and bring them back to operational units and deploy them. So instead of going straight into the training, we actually had a six month, you know, twiddling our thumbs, find another assignment part Mm. of our career after flight training. So that was a bummer. But then after that, they opened it up. And so then, you know, you do that training, get onto your, your first unit. And then they trained us really fast with the last things we needed to do to be deployable, chem gear, all of that. And then poof, off we go to, uh, to Riyadh. And my crew was actually the third crew in theater when we started Operation Southern Watch. Okay. If, if you remember, this is the time after the war when Saddam Hussein still had his MIGs and he was still launching helicopters and um you know, other Doing aircraft. provocative things. Doing provocative things with this. Yeah, with yeah, exactly. Like, you know, genocidal, not good things, right? You know, some of those images from back then are still so haunting to me that of what was happening. Yeah. So we're the third ones in. And so what that meant was we had to keep the CAP, the Combat Air Patrol Airborne, 
at all times. And so we would literally with these three crews and then we got our fourth crew a week later, we were flying one, two, three times a day. Sometimes just an hour, like go up with the gas, go straight into the area. Everybody gets gas and come back down again. Other days were longer, but they were all 01 sorties right over Baghdad. And yeah, we would get chased by MIGs daily. AWACS would tell us to get out of there. We'd retrograde and leave. So imagine that for your first deployment, as I think I had just become a first lieutenant. And what I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, what am I doing? I'm just training and I'm training and I'm training and now I'm doing the thing they trained me to do. So how surprised was my crew when the colonel put in, you know, months later, we'd already flown the minimum sorties to be considered for an air medal and they sent the package to the Pentagon. The package, four packages came back, three of them with air medals, you know, all, all male crews. Our package came back and it literally said that we cannot receive an air medal because there's a female on the crew. Wow. And I, I, you know, I tell you this, I still cannot even believe it happened this way, but it did. And so like, what is everybody supposed to think at that point? Right. Uh, I, I'm like, uh, wait, <laughs> am I not supposed to be here? Hold up. Hold up. <laughs> did you guys send the wrong person? Like, why did you trade me and send me here? Now I can't, you can't admit that I'm here and that I'm doing the work, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. How, but- did, that, how did that get mitigated? How did that get go? Hey, you know what? What's going on here? Uh, how did that, how did that finally come? How'd you finally get the medal? Yeah. Well, we, we had it kind of, you know, we were in shock a little bit because like, like imagine the guys on my crew, what? Well, yeah. I mean, like, how much do they want to fly with a woman now? Right. So yeah. we went, you know, we're like looking at the colonel, like, are you kidding? And he's like, I'm going to appeal this. This is ridiculous. And good. You know, and I knew we had combat exclusion. I tried to get an F-15 out of training. You know, I tried to, I literally asked for it on tracking <laughs> night. I'm like, yes, I'm third, you know, I was third in the class. So, you know, I'm requesting an F-15E to Strike Eagle to Luke Air Force Base. And they're like, uh, you know, we can't do that. So, no, I wanted that. But so sure. it got mitigated. Thank goodness the colonel appealed, sent the package back. And by then we'd already flown another 10, 15, <laughs> sort. He's like, okay, so instead of 37, now we're up to almost 50, right? So he sent the package back and they reconsidered. And then months later, after we went home, we got our air medal mailed to us at Fairchild. So we didn't get the infield recognition ceremony like everybody else. We kind of quietly got it over there, which is, you know, that's, we, we got it, but, but, it, but it was it's weird. Still, it's still, it's still a slight. Yeah. That was what yeah. the, that's not, that was mid nineties. So combat exclusion was lifted the spring of 1993. And this deployment that I'm talking about took place in the previous summer. So July, August, 92, 92. Gotcha. And so they waited long enough that by the time we got it, combat exclusion was being talked about, you know, to lift it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe, you know, if anything, maybe that package help helps start some of that conversation. Like, Hey, look, we currently, I mean, that's a good example of like, yeah, hey, look, guys, we, we got this, you know, yeah. uh, what are we doing? What are we doing now? You're seeing a, a, a lot of females uh, now today going into a lot of combat roles uh, yeah. for someone that experienced that back in the nineties as that was being lifted um, and, and saw some of the, some of the, some of the ramifications of, of like not having that combat exclusion, not lifted, for you, what's it what's it like seeing women now fill some of those roles that oh. you you would not have you would not you didn't get the F fifteen. I didn't. I didn't. And you know, the Navy did let women who just barely missed it, you know, retrain. Yeah. Air Force didn't do that. 
And, um, you know, I, I know a woman who ended up in an um, EA6 intruder for her assignment after she'd been assigned somewhere else. She ended up getting to be a Wizzo and everything. Yeah. But um, so my heart is so happy that the changes that needed to happen, you know, congressionally, societally, and yeah, with all the advocacy that, that we did, you know, through all the organizations that were lobbying for women to be able to do all these things, that yeah. we got to see it happen. And it happened really fast, Tanner. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the overall scheme of it, it happened really fast. And so I I am just so happy. And, you know, when when the exclusion was lifted and in Spokane, they rolled um, – a TV news truck out to the base because of course it was, you know, big hot story. Women are going to be yeah. allowed to go to combat roles in airplanes, not the ground, just airplanes at the yeah. time. And, you know, they wanted to get a couple of women on camera to talk about what it means, right. As the media likes to ask. So Patty Morales and I were the two media trained public affairs people in our, in our squadron. So we did this interview on a windy day with the airplanes in the back standing outside. And the question that, that I was asked about this was, well, are you excited that now you're going to get a chance to go fly those bombers over there? And they really wanted us to say, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they wanted, right? And so Patty's like, do you want this one or should I take it? I'm like, well, I'll, I'll take that one, right? And so I told my F-15 story real quick. You know, yeah. I said, so this is not about us. Okay. We're already trained. We're already instructors. We're already, you know, in our career. This is yeah. not about us. I said, but what makes me so happy, and this is to answer your question, how I feel about it. What makes me so happy today that this has finally happened is that there is a young woman right now who's graduating in the top of her class, pilot training and after training, you know, some other tech training for aviation roles. And when she walks up to the mic to choose the assignment that's available to her in this meritocracy that we have, when she chooses that assignment and it's a combat role, never again will she be denied. And that makes me so happy I can barely even contain myself. That's how I feel about it. So standing. Now, another really interesting part I saw in your career was, and I quote, led a multi-service group of contacts at a U.S. embassy in Quito, Ecuador, uh, encounter yes. narcotics. Now, that's not something I normally see on active duty military bios. Right, right. That happened because if you remember my the first story about being the daughter of Mexican immigrants, yeah, yeah, my parents would not allow us to speak English the moment we walked in the door after school. So our home was a Spanish only zone. And that was because my parents did not want us to lose our first language of Spanish, you know, the, the family language, the ancestor yeah. language. So uh, the major that I was working for at the time, he got a notice at the operations support squadron where I was working there as a wing contingency officer. He prints this out and he comes up, Major McDonald. He says, Captain, I've got something you might want to consider. I said, yeah, what do you got? So he shows it to me and it was this requisition that was open and it said, we're seeking a rated officer, bilingual English, Spanish, you know, able to read, write, you know, and, you know, communicate and present in the language of Spanish to serve. We're looking for a unicorn. (laughs) Somewhere we think this person exists. We don't know where we're going to put it out there. Yeah. And so, but it had reached him because people knew that I was in, I was there. Right. And so he prints it out. He goes, I think you should apply for this. I'm like, oh my God, give me that. (laughs) So I'm like, yeah, you know, I was always the person Tanner, you know, like if I have a map of all the places that I've been in the world, you know, you said earlier about globetrotting, 
you know, yeah. 27 countries, whatever it's been. I have little pins and I have this poster in my, in my house, all the pins of where I've been, but sometimes I don't see the pins. I see all the places where there's no pins. <laughs> I still want to go somewhere else. Right. And I've always been that person. And again, coming back to my humble family origins, my parents had never left the country, never gone abroad. So when I'm in an airplane now serving and I'm going everywhere, I'm bringing my parents with me. And I was showing them the world. Every time I had a chance, I'd bring them at the end of a tour or, you know, not to Saudi Arabia, not there, but like over to Europe and stuff. Right. Um, but the pins. Right. So so when he hands me this and it's like Ecuador, South America. Whoa. There's all these other countries that speak Spanish that I've never been to other than Mexico. Yeah. So I learned there was two people that were wearing wings and that were skilled enough in the language that they could take this liaison assignment at the embassy. And so I called the other guy because they had two people and I knew him because he was flying uh, T-37s at NAV school, uh, Chris Casada. And he's like, oh man, I would love that assignment. My wife would kill me. She just had a baby. I'm like, okay, mm. I'm going. So I applied <laughs> and yeah, I got picked up. But the assignment itself, yeah, I was the, I was overseeing a special ops group of uh, really like every service was represented. We had um, all of them. Everybody was there except the Coast Guard. We were monitoring, you know, communications. We we're basically like in the middle of this neighborhood. Um, you know, like very close to the embassy, but in a neighborhood with high walls, like everybody else there. And if you could peek over the walls, you would see all our comm equipment. But we we're in touch with people, you know, in the jungle and everything. So it was very much counter narcotics. It was a comm center. And I got to oversee that. The reason I needed the Spanish skills was because the officer's job was to basically go to the Pentagon equivalent in the capital there in Quito yeah. and meet with the Ecuadorian Air Force leadership and say things like, oh, buenas tardes, general, sí, sí, quiero pedirle permiso. You know, I have to ask you for permission because the Lockheed contractor uh, needs to come install the new dishes on Saturday. And I know you don't usually work on Saturdays, but <laughs> 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 so then I had to be like culturally sensitive, but then persuasive. Sure. And uh, so I loved it because I was I would just put my blues on and I would walk in there to the basically the Air Force headquarters of Ecuador and meet with these high level guys. And the funny thing about that is they had zero women in their Air Force at the time. So I was oh, a wow. complete bizarre anomaly to them, you know, but the fact that I had winks, the fact that I was speaking Spanish allowed me to be effective in the role. Did that, uh, did you run into any kind of, uh, uh, you know, anything that you had to mitigate yourself in that, in that role? You know, I, I, that's the funny part. I was a curiosity, but I was an officer and I was an equal to them. And so, you know, Latin culture, the whole thing that could have gone many different ways, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm an officer, I'm wearing wings and I'm speaking Spanish. So there's like these, there's lines and equivalencies being drawn here. Right. Yeah. If I was 18, 19 year old, young, little young girl, young woman who, you know, they would be, they would act different toward that could have been different, but then she wouldn't be in that role, would she? The best thing was, the best thing was, there was a major, I still remember him because I'm still in touch with him years later, Patricio Chacon, he's a, a major. And he said, can you come to my house? I'd love for my daughter to meet you. 
So I was invited to the home of this major who was like their IT systems guy. It was the guy I was working with a lot. And I got to meet his wife, Irma, and I got to meet the daughter, Bati, and I got to eat their amazing food. And then when my husband came to visit, we went again to his house. And so those relationships, again, because of the language, was awesome. But my favorite thing was getting to be with this little girl who is 10 and inspiring her to to do whatever she wants to do. And guess what? Years later, they did allow women into the military. They did allow women to go into, you know, become cadets. And she joined their Air Force. Bati joined the Air Force. So she became an officer down there. So those things are precious to me. Those memories. Sure. Yeah. That's outstanding. Um, While you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. Best friend or greatest mentor. It's going to be this major I just talked about. Mm. I'll give you two. I just mentioned him. He brought the the information to me. He knew that I was the restless captain that needed to go somewhere else. And he knew that um, that I had other skills and interests. And I was like, okay, yes, the flying's nice. And I love doing the, the mission. And I'm a crew member. And I'm an instructor. Okay. But what else you got? I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah. literally, I was like, there's got to be more. And um, I had worked for NATO. You mentioned the the Bosnia assignment. I had been yeah. over at NATO. And so I'd already seen that there's roles that are, you know, international with military allies, you know, uh, working in NATO, working the battle staff, being part of operational you know, leadership. Right. I love the battle staff. And yeah. so now I come back. I'm like, OK, keep flying as a crew dog, I'm like, I'm so bored. Right. And so Chris McDonald. Interesting. You, you always hear the other way around. Sometimes you always hear that. I hate the, the staff job. I love being in the air. Yeah. I love being in the air. I but you saw the value. Yeah. Well, you know why it's, it's the, it was the cross cultural experiences. That mm. was it. It's the cross-cultural experiences. It was being in NATO and, you know, being able to hang out with and have lunch with the Italians and the French and the Germans and and having, you know, uh, their troops report to me and then having to figure out how do I manage and how do I lead in a cross-cultural environment uh, where, you know, these guys aren't even used to having women officers around, right? And then figuring that out. And so, but I loved it and I loved the friendships and I loved the language and I loved the the dynamic new cultures yeah yeah Yeah. and so that's what was driving me and yeah i i didn't hate flying it was just getting boring in the seventh year and i was never allowed to pcs because we were so understaffed like can i go to okinawa please no so like if Mm. i'd been somewhere else right but chris recognized that i wanted to contribute to our air force mission in a more you know global reach global power (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can I please stay global? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so he honored that. And so that's why he brought me those opportunities. And then even after I put my paperwork in to leave, um, he brought me one more assignment that he says, I'm going to offer this to you. You can say no, because you're going to come back within, you know, two weeks of your separation date. So you can say no, because that's really cutting it close. He says, but I also think this is such an amazing opportunity. You might want to say yes. And he put me in charge of a capstone mission, which was basically mission planning and flying as a crew, a 17 day tour of facilities around the Pacific theater with newly minted generals and admirals who were going to be taking command in certain sites. And the capstone mission was the KC-135 outfitted for VIP 
passengers and flying into Anchorage, Alaska, uh, Hickam Air Force Base, Hawaii, and then heading further over to three bases in Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, Korea, just places I had never been. Things you things to add to your pins. More pins, more pins, exactly. But that he gave me that tanner, that you know, that's that's a posh mission and a whole lot of responsibility. Yeah. So you need somebody who's going to be able to plan every leg of that and get all the clearances yeah. and coordinate all the stuff for the, you know, the VIPs. And so I I got to be the mission planner for the whole thing. And, you know, the diplomat introducing the new people to, you know, like handing them off. And so that was literally my role. And he didn't have to give me something like that on my way out the door, but he did. No. So, so he's very, very important to me as a mentor who honored you know, the gifts that I had to give other than, but in seat of airplane. Right. Very good. Second one I want to mention just real quick is Kim Olson, who was um, my commander in the 96 refueling squadron. Mm. There came a moment, you know, it was when women had been training, you know, and as aviators have been allowed to, you know, since 1977. And so there came a moment 20 years later from when they started when now they're colonels. And now they're taking positions of command for the first time ever in the Air Force. And we had five squadrons at Fairchild. Three were commanded by women pilots. So it was this incredible moment to be a young woman in a squadron and have female mentors as commanders, right? Now it's very common. It wasn't then. And so I was, I revered Colonel Olson and she was my mentor in that I, I got to go in there and just talk to her as a woman and as an aviator. And ask her questions like, how do you get yourself ready to leave your family for three months when we go to Saudi Arabia? Like, how do you get yourself psychologically ready to leave your kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Men have done this forever. I know. But I wanted to know as a woman, as a mother, you know, I didn't have kids yet, but one day I will. Yeah. How do you mentally get yourself ready to leave? And the answers that she gave me, the conversations that we had really taught me how to, you know, set boundaries live my life and not care about the other people judging the way you live your life because it's different from theirs. So she taught me these life lessons that I use to this day. Colonel Wilson. It's outstanding. Now you did uh, about 10 years active duty, correct? Uh, what, what, what year did you get out? October, 1999. So yeah, it was pretty much nine and a half years. Was pursuing an education in global marketing while you were in, did that spur an idea of what you want to do when you got out? Did that spur you getting out? What was behind that decision? Ooh, absolutely. So when I was working for NATO um, in, uh, in the battle staff, I noticed over there that every child had a cell phone, eight-year-olds, okay, little, little kids running around in Italy and their little cell phones in their backpacks. In 99? 97. 97. Little Whoa. kids, okay, because mobile, mobile tech, mobile telecom got adopted much faster in Europe than it did in the United States. So- at the time back, you know, we barely were getting our little clamshell flip phones and not everybody had them because they were so expensive, right? Yeah. And so I'm over there in Italy and the children, like eight-year-olds have phones. I'm like, what is going on? So that industry caught my attention first. Mm -hmm. The, the okay. fact that there was this prevalent, and you know, I've always been a techie, so it like that caught my attention. Like, how is it that it's so prevalent here and not there? Like what's going on? What are the dynamics? So yeah. when I was over there, that's when I started thinking about the program. 
and the global marketing. And I chose a program in Spokane uh, at Whitworth University that was modeled after the Thunderbird program in Arizona. Uh, and what I mean by that is the faculty at Whitworth in Spokane had actually graduated from Thunderbird. And if you don't know Thunderbird, Thunderbird University is a uh, graduate school that okay. really models uh, the world. So to go there, the cohort is always 50% from outside the United States. Interesting. Because, you know, really, how can you have a global business degree? How can you get a global MBA if everybody is from the United States? Makes sense. That's ridiculous. I can see see the logic behind that. Yeah. And more importantly, they have a requirement that you have to have fluency in another language besides English to enter the program. So that was different. And so the program in Spokane- I took a year year of French in high school. I don't think that would work. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's it, right? And- One thing I do regret uh, is not being more proficient in another language. And I think a lot of Americans have that, that regret as well. You know, that is one of the reasons I write children's books in two languages, because I want to promote and celebrate, um, you know, not only bilingualism, but multilingualism. And that that was it. That was the key. That's why I got in this program, because I was already proficient in in, uh, Spanish. I was working on being proficient in Italian. And so I was able to get into the program. It was a no brainer. I have to go be part of that program. So I joined in the second or third year they had the program. Mm. And when I was getting, you know, I was doing all the classes and of course, deploying, coming back and forth, working my way through the classes, there came a moment where, um, and it coincided with, with the Ecuador assignment that we talked about. I actually wrote my thesis in Ecuador on the telecommunications industry and why things were so backwards in Ecuador. So I, I was being a scholar, I was being academic you know, while on that assignment. And when I came back and I met with Major McDonald, who'd given me that assignment. And he says, is this the part where you're telling me you're getting out? I'm like, yep. <laughs> he knew me. He knew me so well, you know, I'm like, because, oh, oh, you know, he just sent me to another continent and to a really cool assignment and I'm doing my thesis. Right. So yeah. I came back and I said, yeah, I said, I, I'm presenting my thesis and uh, I, I need to get out and go work at that industry because I'm like, my brain's on fire about it. But it, you do have one chance, Air Force, to keep me if you PCS me now to Okinawa and the colonel wouldn't do it. What was behind Okinawa? Why, why Okinawa? What was the <laughs> it's like, it's like everything in the world I'm offered? Every, but if you send me to Okinawa. Yo, I can do some. I mean, my last name is Sato. We can do this. How many times? I know. How many people on your show say Okinawa three times, right? Um, it was there. Was there a fascination just behind Okinawa? Okay, so remember the capstone mission uh, that, that I did yes. later. Okay, yes, that yes, came yes. later. So I hadn't seen Okinawa yet, but I had done an airlift. Uh, you know, we took some cargo out there, so I'd been to Okinawa for like two days. And I was just absolutely fascinated by the place, by the history, by the food. You know, we already knew about the Okinawa diet where people live forever, right? That was already happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a uniquely amazing ecosystem. I wanted to know more. I wanted to go back. And yes, my husband's Japanese. Okay. It's funny. It's, it's funny. You you. Talk to a lot of Marines; they'll tell you a lot about Okinawa. <laughs> like, hey, I've been there for a year. Yeah, uh, but it's but, it, but it's it's. I always want to go to Okinawa. I was never stationed there myself, but uh, no, I yeah. I can I understand the fascination. But I was I think it's hilarious that you're like, okay, I am on this. Path, but if you send me to Okinawa, 
I'm down. I, I will stay. I will stay. Yeah. And, and no, and we were serious. You know, my husband was like, I'll go to Okinawa. And again, you have to have your spouses, you know, like, yeah, you know, of course, support. Yeah. And, but they wouldn't PCS us because we had, I think our manning had dropped to 76% at that point. Mm. And uh, there was a moment where I'm up at the wing commander. I'm talking to the colonel up to the ops group commander. And I'd already put my, made my decision. I said, look, all, I, all I'm asking for is to PCS. I've been here for seven years. Yeah. I will stay in the Air Force. I'm already 18 months beyond when I should have gotten out or could have gotten out, but I'm still here. Um, so what do you think? And he's like, no. And I said, otherwise I'm separating. I have to go somewhere else. And he's like, yeah. I swear to God, this is what he said. Look, if you separate, then it's just another officer leaving the Air Force. But if I let you go to Okinawa, then I'm going to have to justify why I let one of my navigators go when I have 76% manning. Literally, this is what the colonel said to me. And I looked at him. I said, really? So that's your thinking? And he was like, yeah. So I said, you don't want to have to justify why you let someone PCS. It's called retention, sir. Yeah. He's like, not doing it. Not doing it. So he didn't want to have to tell somebody that he PCSed, somebody who wanted to stay in the Air Force, because he would have to justify it. I said, okay, well, then I'm out of here. And, uh, and that's fine because I believe things work out the way they're supposed to. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was your transition like? Now, I, I saw that you went into the corporate world for a bit before becoming an entrepreneur. How did that gig come about? So the transition itself was woman veteran led. What do you mean by that? Okay. So I had to do tap like everybody else. <laughs> Right. We all have to do yeah. that. Um, but there was a woman who had been my babysitter in the squadron when I first got there. Like the little second lieutenant arrives and they put the captain in charge of her to get her settled, get her trained, et cetera. So her name was Justine, Captain Justine Tanabi, still one of my lifelong best friends. She was getting out six months before me. And oh, she wow. had become part of a group, you know, separating. And so she had become part of a group in Spokane called the Hubble Group, which was a Vietnam era woman army veteran named Julia Hubble, who had created the networking group. And the purpose of the group was to move each other's lives forward. That's their tagline. Oh, wow. So Justine had been invited because she was doing community work, volunteer work, community access TV. She was doing video production on the side in addition to being an aircraft navigator, right? Yeah. So she was involved in the community. So so she was in this group. So when I put my paperwork in, she's like, you've got to come with me. I had to introduce you to Julia and you, you know, she'll bring you into this group. The whole purpose is to hear, hear what we need next and help each other out with our network that we have. Yeah. And so my real transition program, the one that actually mattered and taught me what I needed to do to compete with civilians and to differentiate myself, it was led by these two women. And that's the truth. You know, they're the ones that taught me not you should do some informational interviews. No, no, no. This is how, how, that how word again. This is how you do an informational interview. This is how you get someone on the phone to say yes to doing informational interview. This is the benefit to them to do an informational interview with you. They taught me all of that, like actual networking skills to become a civilian in the civilian world taught to me by civilians versus the programming that I was getting with TAP to just do a resume. Sure. And what? And I can only imagine what mid nineties tap class was like compared to what it is now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is it's changed a lot. But you know, yeah. I'm I'm trading people who just got out and it's still it's still very much rooted in a lot of the core. There's some evolution. There's some There's evolution. some that's good, but how much could you really do in one week? 
You know what I mean? Like for a day or two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I, I love that there's groups out there like this. Yeah. Well, and they're, they're, they're everywhere and, and we create them and because we know what's actually needed and the people that are teaching you how to become a civilian, they haven't, you know, had to become a civilian, you know, <laughs> they haven't had yeah. to do it because they're, they're drawing paychecks from, you know, whatever organization. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, for me, if I could tell you, yeah, it's a lot of the work I'm doing right now is what what I've learned is this, you know, TAP teaches you to do the selling with the resume before you ever learn how to do marketing. And in the real world, marketing always precedes selling. And, you know, in the real world, in any business, any corporation. What do you know, mean by that? So marketing. Okay. So my transition, veteran led by the women ended up in a global marketing role with Siemens Enterprise Communications in Silicon Valley. So I literally left the airplane and I became a global marketing manager in the tech sector for telecom software. So I went exactly where I said I was going to go, right? Remember telecom? You went, yeah. Okay. And it's not a straight line. There, there's a lot Give of- Give me the how. Give me okay. the how. Let's do it. Okay. The how. I'm Jack. <laughs> okay. So step one, these women said to me, you have- and, and this is something I say to every veteran. Okay, I channel these women. This is what they said. You have so much talent, so much leadership capability and experience, so much energy, but you have no idea how big the world is and what's out here for you. Mm. So step one that they told me is stop. You know, no job search, no resumes, just stop. And you have to self-assess. Assess yourself, not your skills. You already know what those are, but assess the kind of environments that you want to work in next. Define your life for the next five or 10 years. Imagine who you can be, where you want to work. Do you still want to wear a uniform? Do you want to work at a huge organization? Do you want to be a big fish in a small pond? Are you happy with the big pond? What kind of people do you want to work with? People less educated than you, more educated than you. What kind of environment do you want to be in for the next chapter of your life? They made me just stop self-assess my own values, what drives me, what, you know, what I love to do and where, where's, where do I want to put it? That's not what tab does at all. Okay. No. It's a checklist, right? So they're like, no, it starts with you. It starts with you. And so that's what they did for me. I had to stop and just kind of say, okay, it looks like what I love to do. Like, yeah, I could do spreadsheets. I can do technical manuals. <laughs> I can do those things. That has nothing to do with what I love to do. I am, at the end of the day, I am a presenter, a briefer, a creator of content. I'm, an, I'm a writer. I'm a communicator. And I like to get a lot of complexity of information coming at me, especially the technical kind. And then I want to make sense of it. I want to translate it into language that makes sense for the audience that needs to hear it. In other words, you belong in marketing. That's what I learned from that whole process. How did you sell that, those skills, those values of yourself to get the role that you wanted to get with Siemens? Exactly. Right. How does a person navigating airplanes in combat zones to, so planes can get gas, how do you yeah. get hired at a software company into global marketing management? Yep. That's a sales. You, you found out what you valued. Now, how did you translate that for so someone could listen to that? That's what you're good at. There's another step is in learning what drove me and what I love to do. I still didn't know Jack about the corporate world. Yeah. I had never worked in a corporation. I had high school jobs and then I went to college and I had cafeteria jobs and, you know, 
weird student jobs. And I went straight into Air Force flight training and all that, right? I had never even been to a company office that had like, you know, accounting, finance, marketing, ops. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Okay. So between self-assessing where it might fit and starting to interview, okay, they had me, again, it was my woman veteran guided tab program. They had me, I would say things like, okay, I think I want to do operations because, you know, obviously I'm doing operations now. I want to find out what ops is in a corporation. And they would look at me like, you're not ops. But here, call my friend who works at such and such, go to the factory, go see how they do ops and what ops is. So go learn. They would hook me up with people and I would go meet the people and I would go learn, no kidding, what ops is in a corporate setting. And then I would go meet with a finance person. I would go see accounting and finance. And I'd be like, oh my God, I cannot deal with accounting and finance. I mean, yeah, I could do it, but oh my God, how do you like motivate yourself, right? Sure. As a business owner now, I have the same attitude. Got a bookkeeper, please handle it, right? But what became very clear in my learning of what these roles are is that I was either an HR person or I was marketing. And as I met with professionals doing HR and marketing, it was very clear to me, to myself, I mean, people would tell me, oh, you sound like you'd be a great HR manager, but myself, I'd be like, no, right? Uh, And when they said marketing, clearly you're marketing, you're a communicator, you belong in, in a role, listening to the engineers, listening to what we're developing, and then translating it into messages that's going to excite sales so that they can go forth and sell. That's yeah. what marketing is. So so I learned about marketing and I learned what it meant to actually do it by hanging out with professional marketing people in corporations as part of my informational interview process. Research. Okay, so, research, but not just reading about it on the web, like meeting the people, talking to them and say, well, what do you love about it? Okay. What sucks about marketing? You know, and, and, and those questions and then learning with actual, Oh, let's say it again, mentors, actual mentors. And, and so that was the key part. And then, so now that I understand that I really want a marketing role, And knowing that I really want a marketing role in tech and telecom, now I'm ready to start messaging myself, communicating. So you asked me, how did I do it? Okay. Marketing precedes selling. Okay. Marketing, let let me define that real quick. I'll define it here as marketing is creating and matching a powerful, distinctive message to influence a specific audience to act. That's what marketing is. Okay. And that always precedes selling, right? Before anybody can sell you anything, they have to get your attention with the message, right? And so what these ladies taught me to do to sell yourself, you know, you, you can't sell if you can't attract the right prospective buyer, right? So what, what does that mean? You know, as a job candidate in transition, you got to cut through the noise that your audience is hearing. You got to grab their attention, you know, the hiring manager, say something that makes them think, whoa, what? Tell me more about that. Okay. When you get that reaction, that's the marketing. You're like, I just grabbed your attention. Now you're listening to me. Now the door is open to selling yourself as a candidate or a service or a product or a business. And yeah, and your resume now, because the resume is a marketing deliverable, right? Now they're hooked and they want to know more. Well, now you can present the customized resume. That is your selling point of view, but you can't do it unless you market and get the attention of the person who needs your resume. That's what they taught me. And so I went to Denver to the National Society of Hispanic MBAs Giant Career Fair, it's an organization I was part of. I did not have a resume. They told me, go there with no resume. I said, are you crazy? Taps says I have to have a resume. They said, trust us, go there, no resume. 
Interesting. Right. And just walk up and tell this story that you've now developed. And what's the story? The story is the personal branding. The story is something that is going to grab the attention of Allied Signals hiring manager, right? Or, um, you know, US West or whoever the telecom companies just walk up to the table. Just, and so, Tanner, this is exactly what Major Burgess did for me as a high school kid. Yeah. This is how you prepare to walk up to the table and make that impression. This is how you do it, right? So I did. I just went there and I would just go up and introduce myself with, you know, a story brand that the goal is, they said, is they have them say, wow, tell me more about that. Do you have your resume? Right. I'd be happy to send your resume next week. Let's talk. I got interviewed by five companies at that career fair with no resume because I was marketing. It's funny when, when people talk about going to career fairs and they're always talking about, yeah, it's always just a conversation. It's, it's, there's no, there's no actual hiring there at the career fair. I was, I was yeah, because th they're built for exactly what you're talking about. Yep. They're, they're built for people to come up and market themselves. Okay. So, so I love that. I love that analogy you just said, all these people, all these companies, they're there. They're saying, please come and market yourself to us. Okay. Come, come get my attention because I'm just sitting here at my table all day. I'm the HR specialist. You know, I'm here at this career fair. They sent me here. I got to recruit people and I'm just sitting here really bored. And I've got all these people coming up to me saying the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And so what do they say to you? Go to the website, apply there. In other words, get out of my face. Yeah. And you, and you hear veterans talk about that all the time. Yep. Right. Right. So that means that you're not marketing yourself. You're, you don't have personal branding. You didn't get their attention. You didn't cut through the noise. You do not have an opportunity to sell yourself because you didn't get their attention. This is why the, the whole process is so exasperating for so many veterans is because, you know, while you go through those two, three days of tap, whole week, whatever you actually get, there's no marketing professionals there. Yeah. There's no marketing mindset curriculum being taught to you. You know, you're told create a resume and customize it. And that's, that's literally the cart before the horse and selling before marketing. And that's why it's so frustrating. And so the way it worked for me is I went there and I literally just, you know, and, and I practiced, right. Introducing myself and the value that I would add to this company as, and what are the things I emphasize that I say, yeah, I'm really good at radar. <laughs> <laughs> No, I never talked about it. I say, yeah, you know, I would say things like, you know, uh, you know, op, high ups tempo, dynamic environment, time is of the essence. You know, I'm that leader that you could rely on. And, you know, and, and if it was a company for a marketing role, I would talk about the fact that I've been briefing generals in three languages. You know, and so you say things that other people are not walking up and saying, yeah, I've been briefing generals in three languages. I can bring yeah. global savvy marketing mindset to your company. Right. Yeah. And so they taught me how to introduce myself so that they would want to know more and they would ask for my resume. And then, like I said, I just got interviewed over and over again. And I was like, I don't even have a resume. Yeah. I went back and I put one, you know, I customized it and I would send it to them as follow up. But by then it was already in the bag and they already offered me to go to Chicago for the next round of interviews. Right. So that's how, that's how Siemens, you, you saw them at the, at the, at a fair, career fair and sold yourself. Your questions are so good, Tanner. No, <laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> no, but this, this is a great lead in question. Okay. Uh, so how many job interviews had I really done at this point? I'm 30 years old getting out of the Air Force. This is literally my first time doing job interviews. So I took it. And again, this is the advice I got. Just 
Give yourself the time to do lots of interviews, hear lots of questions, understand what it feels like to be interviewed because it's a very intimidating process as anybody who's done it can attest to, right? Uh, give yourself that time. And then when the role that you're seeking comes along, you're going to be so damn ready. And this is what they told me. So just do lots of interviews, get job offers, turn them down, just go through the whole thing, right? That's yeah. what I did. Siemens, the, the role I ended up accepting after turning down several, came this way. And, and this is so important for veterans, all right? We have LinkedIn now. We didn't have LinkedIn then, but it didn't yeah. matter because you don't, you know, LinkedIn is another tool, right? Everybody's like, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Yes, it's an awesome tool for networking. But the process I'm about to tell you of what I did has worked 100 years ago. It'll work in 100 years, okay? I went right back to my network of people that knew me so my college alumni network, in my case, I was in the marching band. So I had a list of all my marching band friends at Berkeley. That was my alumni network, my strongest yeah. network. And I sent a really quick email. And again, it's all timing. Okay, I've done the research, done the interviews. You know, I, I'm, I'm all the way down here now. And I sent a very quick email that simply said what I was looking for. And this is the takeaway for, for job seekers. Until you can articulate... The role, the interest, the type of company you're looking for is something specific. Until you can articulate something specific that you're looking for because you know, there's not a whole lot that your network can do for you. And this is a really big problem for people who say things like, well, I can do anything or I'm open to anything. Yeah. What exactly am I supposed to do for you? I've got, you know, 3,800 contacts on LinkedIn. I have no idea what to do for you because you don't know what you're doing for yourself. Yeah. Good point. I mean, it is it is so important. And so what they told me to do is once you know, now communicate that to your, your professional network. Okay. So I jumped out a quick email and I literally wrote a message that said, hi guys, as you remember, you know, I've been in the Air Force for almost 10 years, got out, been doing a lot of research interviews, and now I know what I'm looking for. I'm seeking a global marketing management role in the telecommunications industry. I'm thinking Cisco, Siemens, you know, uh, the, you know, European, Telecom Italia, you know, like this. People I'd met when I was doing my thesis, by the way, okay, yeah. in Ecuador. I had met telecom executives because that was my thesis. So uh, let me know if, you know, anybody hiring or can make an introduction for me. I've got a resume ready to go. Boom. That's it. What I wrote right there, you can write it right now on LinkedIn once you know. Hey guys, I'm looking for a fill-in-the-blank role at a fill-in-the-blank industry, preferably a company like this, this, and this. Let me know if anyone's hiring. Boom. When I see a post like that on LinkedIn, which is rare, then I immediately can connect in with somebody, right? And that, Tanner, is exactly what happened. I sent that email to my friends and a tenor saxophone player named Kathy Heilman, who I knew at Cal. <laughs> was working at Siemens in Silicon Valley. And I got a message from her inside five minutes. It was like, bam, because I just said something specific wow. and I'm attracting that opportunity now. Okay. This, yeah. this is personal branding. I didn't know it was called that. Okay. But this is what personal branding is. So she wrote back to me. She says, oh my goodness, Graciela, you're not going to believe the requisition I just wrote. Check it out. It's attached. You sound absolutely perfect for this. Let me know if you're interested in the interview. I'll get it set up for you. Literally, global marketing manager for Siemens Enterprise Networks required multiple languages. Everything it, it was, it was my, it was like written for me. Tailored. She, 
She didn't even know she was writing it for me. And then I show up and I say, this is what I'm looking for. Okay. So what did I just tell you? Okay. Research, research, interview, understand the possibilities for you. Like my network said to me, you have no idea how big the world is. And then get specific, narrow it down to what you really want to pursue next. You can change your mind later. It's okay. Just pick something, right? And then specify what you're looking for, tell the world, and then let your network bring it to you. That's what I did. I love the passion that you speak about this stuff. I do. I, I really love how you get, it gets me excited just by, just by hearing you. Um, okay. So you were at, you were at Siemens for, for a, a, a few years. Uh, what, what made you go, okay, I'm ready to step out and create my own company. So at Siemens, I was in a global marketing role, which I mentioned it was, you know, it was, it was great. It was everything I thought it would be and more launched yeah. a lot of products, uh, was called on to write presentations for executives. Again, very much a communication role, did some PR stuff with our PR team, everything. So I, I was learning, but you know, I always had this entrepreneurial thing in my head because I'm yeah. Latina <laughs> because <laughs> we create six times more businesses than you know, the national average. I mean, like I've always had really? this entrepreneurial streak. Yeah. It's census data right there. Wow. Six times uh, the national average is the, the, small businesses that we start up. So I had this in my head, just somewhere in the back that someday I'm going to have my own business. And so I'm taking notes, I'm doing all this and I'm, I'm really learning ops, hanging out with HR, hanging out with engineering and my job is marketing. Right. So nine years is how long I was there. Answer what made me make the switch a layoff. That would do it. The global financial crisis of 2009. Okay. And between starting and the layoff, you know, I got to promote in the group. I got to compete for other positions and I got to travel a lot and and run global marketing teams, right? And, you know, four continents, product launches, always a global role, loved it. And then the layoff happened and it really came out of nowhere. Like we didn't even get a hint that it was going to happen. Wow. Um, and, and it was, it wasn't just a little layoff. Tanner, they closed the entire Silicon Valley office down, which is one of the most expensive offices and right by the San Jose airport. And they kept uh, like one U.S. marketer, took all the global marketing back to Munich. So they kept one U.S. marketer and they kept an engineering team of three to keep the tech going so they could sell it to private equity. So they literally shut the office down. We were all gone. It was bad. It was really brutal. July of 2009. But here's the good news. And this is, you know, another tip that I give to people once they transition is there is no security. There's no job security in a corporate role. There just is. It's business, right? And so what, Again, what I was advised to do as they discovered that I had an entrepreneurial streak is what kind of side gig, what kind of additional revenue stream, I'll use those words, what kind of additional revenue stream can you develop for yourself while you're in a corporate role so that you're exploring the thing you really love to do as your own business? Like, what is that, right? And for me, it was um, being a keynote speaker. It was, again, writing content. I was writing content for executives. But very importantly, I started publishing. You know, we started this interview with, you know, you calling me, rightly so, an author. And so I've always authored things. And so what I was doing in a global role, global marketing role that was outside the scope of my actual duties, but the company loved it, is I was writing thought leadership pieces showcasing our customers using our technology and the benefits they were deriving in their business, hospital, university, because they're using Siemens technology and networking. 
I love that you said outside your normal scope. Yep. But you're pursuing your own personal passion, but still benefiting the company. Yeah. Love that. Because, because, you know, you know why? Because they made the, those ladies made me self-assess before I started. And the thing that became very apparent is that I love to be the storyteller and I love to show what's working and I love to inspire people with those stories. That's always been the theme since forever. Right. And so I would publish in, you know, telephony today or internet telephony, whatever the magazine was, I would interview one of our customers and they liked the publicity of how awesome they are that they're leading their technology implementation. Right. So the customers loving it. And what I do with my VP of marketing, this is a negotiation tip. If you're doing stuff outside your job that is benefiting the company, please find a way to get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I went to Mark, to our VP of marketing. I said, look, I've got this opportunity with our PR team to place thought leadership pieces, you know, in the industry so that we can look awesome and as the leaders that we are, but that takes hours. So how about if you pay me every time I get something published? Yeah. And he's like, you're working with Holly and her PR team? I said, yeah, yeah, the public affairs agency that we had, uh, public relations. He says, okay. Uh, he says, how about if I pay you $1,000 every time an article publishes? I'm like, put it in writing? I'll put it in writing. Okay. So I've developed a little bonus program for myself. And that's an incentive, right? And so I would get things published. And then what happened then is, well, now my name is out there as a thought leader, marketing professional in yeah. this industry. And then what happened then that leads to what happened with the layoff is I was asked to join an industry strategy team called Unified Communications or something analysts. And from that came an invitation to go do a keynote in Athens, Greece. Wow. For Italian and Greek um basically, you know, technology professionals in their countries who wanted to see what is this new technology that we're hearing about this called unified communications, who's using it and why. So it was an entire keynote about early adopters and how they're using the tech to what benefit. So basically all the stories I've been writing, I got to pick the best ones and turn it into a 30 minute keynote on stage in Greece, in Greece and get paid for it. And so I remember coming back and, well, that's not a bad gig. That was pretty cool. And, yeah, I, <laughs> and I took leave from Siemens to go do that because now that was really on my own, right? Yeah. Took some vacation time. But I came back and I was like, wow, you know, imagine that. Imagine traveling, writing, getting on stage, presenting, inspiring, and then having a chance afterwards to talk to people that heard your presentation who want to know more. Imagine actually doing that for a living. That's, that's what I created with my business because there was a layoff. <laughs> so it hadn't been a layoff, couldn't have done it, yeah. right? So did, did public speaking, branding yourself as a public speaker, did that come before the publishing company? Did that coincide it? What came first? Uh, Where did you start getting the revenue? So, okay. So the, the layoff happened July, 2009. The conference in Athens was December 2008. So even before wow. the layoff and even before my company, that's when I got that invitation to go speak, right? So that was kind of like the, aha, this is a thing that I can do in the world and that there's value, right? So the speaking, the writing happened first, right? The writing in the magazines, my little bonus program I created where I was promoting Siemens technology and customers, that happened first. So it started with the writing and then the writing was seen by people who then invited me to come speak, which then invited more people to get me to write, to pay me to write, and then more people pay me to speak. So it keeps going. The company that I set up, I called it Gracefully Global Group. 
And I think now that you've heard my whole story, that name makes a lot more sense, right? Yeah. I yeah. like to move about the world gracefully. And I always have a global mindset. Everything we do at this company is global in nature. So it started with the speaking and then it started, uh, I I published a book and I launched it at Stanford called Latinovating, Green American Jobs and Latinos Creating Them. And like I said earlier, you know, it's a well-hidden secret that the Latino community creates more businesses than anybody else in this country, any other demographic. And so I decided to write a case study book and feature 10 incredible people creating sustainable businesses as if the planet matters. And that was the book that we launched uh, first. So that the, the 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 writing and the articles turn into the public speaking, turn into a book opportunity. Yes. Okay. The book, the first one that I did was because I published a, a feature story in the National Society of Hispanic MBAs. Remember that career fair I talked about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Denver, they have a professional association. They had a magazine and the editor asked me to write a feature article for that magazine, which led to some interviews. And then the article was so well received that I decided to go ahead and write a book on that topic. Self-publish or did you get a publisher? I created a company to publish books. Before Amazon was a thing, big thing. Oh, oh Amazon was a thing. I was, yeah. Amazon was, was a thing. Uh, but here, here's what I did is, um, you know, I think you can kind of tell that I love the marketing process and like messaging. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, Latino Vading, green, green American Jobs and Latinos Creating Them, which highlights Hispanic entrepreneurs innovating in the green economy. I mean, when folks talk about niche marketing, that's pretty niche. Niche. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, the riches are in the niches. You've heard that, right? Yeah, it, exactly. Uh, because if I write a book that's like how to become an entrepreneur, well, then how do you choose my book over every other book about how to become an entrepreneur? I mean, it's like make me yawn, right? But instead, I'm going to tell you case studies from a community that is just on fire with entrepreneurship, but a community you usually don't hear about. Right. Okay. And yeah. so the company that I had started, you know, to do the writing and to the public speaking, I love the theme of mentorship. The publisher I was working with in San Francisco to publish that book, Latino Vading, um, she, her name is Katerina Thrive Publishing, and she was producing this book for me. And so we're meeting and she looks at me, she goes, you know what? I just had an idea. I said, what? She says, I'm not going to be the publisher. You're going to be the publisher. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> Are you dumping me? She's like, no, no, no. We're going to still produce it for you. Obviously we're producing the book, but publishing is not producing. Okay. Publishing is is all of it. It's the product development. It's the marketing. It's it's everything, right? So she says, so you're going to be the publisher and you, because you're going to market this book much better than I ever will, because when we're done with this book, we got another book and another book, right? So publishers are not going to be your marketers. So that's the lesson. So she mm -hmm. taught me how to become a publisher, Tanner. She literally mentored me. I was an author that she's publishing a book for, but then she waved her magic wand and turned me into a publisher. She said, you've already got a business. Right, you doing public speaking. Obviously, you're writing. Just add another service to your company. That's the publishing. I'm like, wow. And then this is how you do the publishing. And she taught me the whole thing. So was it was it mainly Amazon that was you know at the time, or was it was there other things that? Oh, so are you saying on the on the marketing and distribution side I, that term self publishing? That it's no, it's this is not self publishing. This is a, an entrepreneur. This is a woman veteran owned publishing firm that I have yeah. created and the publishing firm hires professional editors, proofreaders, translators, artists, everything to create award-winning internationally award-winning literature. Okay. okay. So I do not self-publish self-publishing sounds like you're publishing by yourself. And that's so silly. Um, yeah. the, 
the LLC that I created publishes my work, but there's a whole team behind that. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Forget, forgive me. I have no idea when it, people talk about self-publish, talk about publishing books. Like I am not in that arena. Oh no, no well, problem. I, I, no, I am, I, I am yeah. so, I appreciate the question. Yeah, no, I enamor, I'm an, I'm enamored with it. I'm intrigued by it because I know nothing about it. So, well, yeah. And, and I appreciate the question because, you know, too many people think self-publishing is like, I'm going to publish myself. It's like, Oh God, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to write a book, go out on Amazon <laughs> and then ask to be on podcasts. Like- <laughs> that, that, that is the thing. That is the thing you can do. But I will tell you that you're going to be in the 95% of people that sells less than 200 books. If yeah. that's how you do it, because that's yeah. not real publishing. That's not real marketing. That's you throwing a book there and, and, you know, call yourself an author, which you are, but you know, let's talk quality control. And are you entering it into competitions and having juries review your work and deeming that it's the most inspirational children's book bilingual by the international Latino book awards, for example, like, yeah. will you put your work in front of people and have it judged so that someone else can say how awesome it is? Or are you just going to self-publish? Right. Exactly. And, and you want to, and you want to, you want to put yourself up against other people to understand where, where the bar is. Exactly. And, and be aware of the bar and keep, yeah, when it moves, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so no, uh, you know, the, the whole publishing side of things, uh, to be a professional publisher, I, I can, I don't understand what that all entails. And I appreciate you actually laying that out there. Absolutely. I want to get into your children's books. Uh, you talked about your children's books, bilingual. Um, Unique stories about mommies serving in the military. Um, it looks like they did well on Amazon on the and on the award circuit. Yeah. Uh, it's now a series. Uh, that success, like you talked about, it's behind the publishing, the marketing arm behind that. It wasn't random osmosis on Amazon when we talk about self-publishing. Right. Uh, what, talk about having a team behind you. What work did you have to do? What work did you have to put behind marketing those books to make them successful? Yeah. Well, you know, I told you that my publisher turned me into a publisher. So yes. once she did that, like the the power that you feel like I've got the power now I can create other books, right? Like, cause yeah. now I know how to, um, the inspiration for good night, captain mama, which is a series debut. Buenas noches, Capitan Mama was my son when he was about three and a half. And it was the night before Veterans Day. I had my flight suit on. I was shining my boots. I was going to go to the preschool as a veteran for Veterans Day because we've been invited. And of course, I was the only mom that was a vet. So I was going to make sure I went. And so it was the night before and I saw him getting ready for bed. And I said to my husband, you know, call him in here. I don't think he's even seen me in my uniform before. And so Kiyoshi came in and my husband was filming and he took the patches off my uniform, asked questions. What's this with the Eagle? And what is, why does this have a star over your name? So in that moment, Tanner, I had a chance to answer my son's questions about what all the insignia on my uniform meant, which really was a very spontaneous conversation with a young child about why I served and what I did and why it mattered. And that's all I thought was happening. But then when he left the room, he said, I love you, Captain Mama. He asked about the rank, right? Oh. When he said Captain Mama Tanner, I'm like, oh my God, that is a character he just came up with, right? And so again, creative moment. I felt like somebody smashed me in the face with the frying pan and woke me up. Like, look at this creativity, this this potential for a children's book. Um, I sit up until four in the morning researching this question. Are there children's books in where mom is the person serving? 
Yes. How many of those have actually been written by women who have served? I found exactly two at the time. I think now we're up to four and two of them are mine. Okay. Wow. It's, it's a huge growth area in publishing is children's books, bilingual children's books even more. And there's nothing except for my books. My books are the only ones even to this day that are in two languages where mom is the military service member. There are no books in this. So if you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) wow, it's wide open and it's amazing. Now the team, okay. The team first, you have to have an amazing illustrator, right? Well, I was in preschool and there was a a mom there named Linda Lenz who ended up being my illustrator. I interviewed three illustrators, but she was like perfect because she studied fine arts and portraiture. She lives five minutes from my house. She's a mom and she is the daughter of an air force veteran. So like, you know, God put her right there in my way again. It's like, yeah. you are my illustrator. The conversation I had with my son turned into the series debut, Good Night, Captain Mama. And then the second book is the Captain Mama Surprise. It's where Marco uh, and his class and his sisters now go out to the KC-135. And we tour the plane that Mama was talking about in the first book. But it's a class field trip because we're an educational publishing company, right? So you asked about the marketing. This was always about getting books in the hands of school children to inspire them. Their their STEM themes, their aviation themes. We introduced vocabulary, you know, aviation vocabulary. But in the back of of Captain Mama Surprise, La Sopesa de Capitan Mama, we have a glossario in Espanol and a glossary in English. So you're learning how to say tren de aterrizaje, which is a sexy way of saying landing gear, right? Mm. And so you learn the technical language, you learn the aviation language. But what you're seeing is imagery that says moms, Latinas, women are veterans too. Which, if you remember the interview you did with Kayla, Kayla Williams, she was talking about that, that, you know, we're still in society because we're such a small sliver of the population. We're still trying to educate the American population that women also serve. But if our children's literature doesn't show that, then there's many less opportunities for, for young girls to grow up knowing that they want to fly. And so my mission is to go in there and to schools. And that's what we do. We, we, market to schools. We sell teacher packs in groups of 21 and 31. And then remember the patches that my son was pulling off my uniform? It came with patches? We made patches of the cover art of each book. And so we sell them as teacher packs to schools, books and patches. And kids love them. I think I'm getting the difference between professional publishing and self-publishing by yeah. hearing this <laughs> and the marketing behind it. Right, um, right. And I don't write the Spanish. I do not write the Spanish because- why would I want to do everything? I don't illustrate my own pictures. I don't write the Spanish. Yeah, I hire yeah. professional illust- or a professional translator. She's in Las Vegas, Annabelle Granados. And she is a goddess. She like found the entire KC-135 technical manual used by the Spanish Air Force. Oh, wow. So that she could use the Jeez. correct word for how you say, you know, the boom, you know, that does refueling, the refueling boom. How do you say that in yeah. Spanish? I don't know. I never had to, right? Yeah. But so she is my professional translator. She's amazing. And so, yeah, publishing is illustration. It is the translation. It is my publishing consultant who then she project manages the whole thing for me. I do the marketing. See, that's the part that I love, right? Ah, so I so, do the so marketing the patches, plan. The patches were you. I yes. love the idea of the patches. That, Got you. 
that, yeah, that, that came from me totally because of my son. Right. But the whole team, everybody specializes to make it really awesome. And then of course we have proofreaders in English. We have proofreaders in Spanish. I bring in, um, you know, moms, teachers, uh, parents, veterans that speak and read two languages and I have them look at the text. So it's really professional publishing. It's a ton of work. It takes us three years to put a book together, but it's because we do it right. And that's what I love about it. And then at the end, we have another book baby to inspire. Book babies. Uh, you, 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 you mentor other authors now with book birthing services. Now I read that I had to ask what is a book birthing service? Cause I mean, the mind goes in creative places, right? So, uh. <laughs> Intentionally so. I, so in other words, I cut through the noise, right? I cut through the noise with my message. Yes. Okay. So, so it's called birthing your book. And what that means is that you have a book, right? There's a lot of people who want to coach you on how to write. I'm not interested in that. If you need to know how to write, then please go figure that out because, you know, I, I, that's not what I want to help you with. Other sure. people can help you. I am interested in birthing your book. I'm interested in helping you push, push, push and get it out into the world, right? And Love to it. have it received, with to have excitement. it received with excitement, like a baby, like the baby's here. People have been waiting for the birth of the baby, right? They can't wait for the baby to come. Right. But that's not what happens with books. You know, usually with books, it's like, hi, I have a book. Go buy it on Amazon. And you're like, hey, I didn't know you were pregnant. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So 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 birthing your book, it's like you are going to birth. That means you have your tribe ready to to have your baby shower for you. They're going to bring you gifts. You have pre-orders, people that have already surrounded you because they're so excited about the birth of this baby that they can't wait to tell other people. Right. Mm. And so, so the key, the magic that, that I've created with not only the production team, but the people that helped me launch Channer, it's always the believers of the work that know about it way before it's actually a book baby, before it actually exists. So the coaching that I do is I meet you where you are with your book. And that's usually when you have a finished manuscript, because okay. some people, like you said earlier, they don't know if they want to get it published on their own or they, if they want to write a, you know, find an agent and be introduced to Scholastic. I help you understand what it means to do each of those. If you want to meet an agent that places authors with Scholastic, I can help you meet those people because I know them. They're in my publishing universe. But when I show you the business case of how much money that agent's going to make versus how much money you're going to make forever and ever and ever off of your idea, a lot of people are like, I want to have my own publishing company like you do. (laughs) I know you do, but do you really want to? Because look at all the work, right? So I, I, I basically, I take a person who has a book that they're trying to pop out of themselves and we have that conversation about the different ways to do it. So the, the equivalent is like, do you want to have an underwater birth in a hot tub with the doula? Or do you want, um, uh, you know, to be in a hospital and do it the traditional way? Do you want a C-section? What do you want? Right. Yeah. Just like that, there's lots of different ways to birth a book. And so I'll give you that layout. And then you make your decision based on business and marketing realities of what you can pull off. Right. And why you're writing, who you think your buyers are. And I help you make a marketing plan because it's just like when your baby is born Tanner like now what you thought you thought getting the baby out was the hard part no 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 that's that's just product development right yeah getting the baby out now the hard part starts which is how do I raise this baby how many how many bestsellers has your publishing company been a part of 
So we have a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We have 11, uh, 12, 12 ISBNs, okay? Uh, distinctly different titles, let's say five or six now that have all been bestsellers. Very good. Because we launch that way. And then they stay at the bestseller list for you know, a month or two, whatever it takes, and then they drop down. Someone else launches books. It just always sure. cycles. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. once you're on that list, uh, you, you're, you'll always have that. And uh, right before your resume that we launched in November, it went straight to number one in the military families category. Very good. Um, talk to me about writing as a profession. I'm, I'm sure someone clicked on this episode because it said author yeah. or publisher. The writing profession, the writing industry – much like music has changed drastically in the past decade or so due to digital media. Right. For the veterans that are getting out now and want to start writing, maybe they, maybe they have a manuscript, maybe they don't. What is your advice to them when they look at the industry as a whole? You know, I think a lot of people are waiting for permission to start or thinking that something has to be just right for them to start. And the opposite is true. The most important thing about writing and, you know, one day having content that you might use as a blog or that you might actually go into the publishing realm is simply to always be writing. And uh, I'll tell you one of the things that I do, because I have three kids and, you know, <laughs> life is insane for all of us, right? So sure. one of the things that I do that's one of my most important tools to always be generating written content is that I use voice texting a lot. I'm an Evernote user. Um, I, I just open up a note and, and this could be like sitting in the car waiting for your kid to come out of school or you just bought some groceries and you go back to the car and you've got 10 minutes, you know, and your brain's thinking about something. Just yeah. open up Evernote. And then say, you know, chapter about the time that we went to Suda Bay, Greece, right? Like if I'm writing my memoirs, I will just talk to my phone and I will just literally, I'll just talk. I'll just say whatever. And I want to capture the thought and it might be random, uh, but you captured a potential chapter for your book. And now, you know, it's probably got some errors because it's voice texting, right? Sure, sure, um, yeah. But now you have something to sit down and then revise it because revising is part two. Yeah. And so one of my most important tips is always be writing. The second one is when you are actually sitting down to write, kick the editor out of the room. This is so important. Let me say it again. When you are writing, kick the editor out of the room. I don't know about you, but when Microsoft Word underlines a word that I just misspelled in red, my OCD personality goes back and fixes that word that I just saw that I misspelled. I'm the exact same way. Why did they even put that feature in there? What were they thinking? Or now they got the double underline. Like I'm oh, looking at, God. I'm looking at like the research I've done, you know, for this interview. And there's like a double underline that I've been staring at for like 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, okay. no, absolutely. Not helpful to writers. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely understand that. So turn that feature off. Okay. And if you can't turn that feature off, then you're going to have to spend the mental energy to just ignore it. But when you're writing, I, I just, there's no editor and, and you have to get the editor out of the room because you just need to be in the flow and just write, which is probably why I love the voice texting. The key is to just always be capturing content. And then guess what? Once you have a whole bunch of messy chapters, you can organize them and just give them some chapters like chapter about Greece, chapter about the deployment to whatever, chapter about the time I almost died. You know, give it simple things and then you bring in your professional editor professional editor. So important. Let them organize your stuff. Um, for the book we just launched in November, I hired an Air Force veteran because this is a book about, it's a marketing guide for 
transitioning service members and veterans. So I wanted the brain of a professional editor who has been through the transition process to be my editor for this book. And she did a tremendous job. Her name is Sarah Maples. She's in Florida. Okay. Again, always part of the team, but she, there would be nothing for her to edit if I was still waiting for some magic moment to start writing. That's great advice. Um, Graciel, what's, what is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? You know, I think I've alluded if you to, to pick one, If you were to pick one thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, can I do 1.5 things? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> For, first of all, you know, the, nothing happens in a vacuum. The, the team, the mentors make all the difference in your actual success. I'll, I'll say it this way. You will be successful when you're surrounded by people who want you to be successful. Sure. That's true going back to, you know, how I got the scholarship in the first place, the story I told you. That's true when you're in flight training and you're surrounded by instructors who are teaching you and you're surrounded by your classmates who really want to make sure you don't bust that check ride and that you're going to do great on your check ride, right? And and you're surrounded by people who really are cheering you on. That applies all the way now to everything I told you about how we launch, produce and launch books into the world. Um, you have to like, really, I think a lot of ego can stop people in that. I have to figure this out myself. I, or you think that you have to figure it out yourself because you don't want to be perceived as looking weak or needy. That's such silliness because success mm -hmm. comes from that group, that, that thrust that you get from the whole group that they're elevating you, right? That is so important. And I learned it in the air force. I learned it over and over and over again in the air force. And it's certainly true in business and it's certainly true in writing and publishing. Um, and the, the point five is, wow, what an amazing, huge, beautiful world we have. And I can't wait to see more of it. Uh, that still motivates me um, to continue traveling. And I can't wait for COVID to be over because we haven't traveled in a while. <laughs> she took our kids to Mexico Absolutely. and Japan in the last four years, you know, with their grandparents. And um, it's just really hard to not be traveling. Yeah. Um, my father just passed away a week after we launched the book in November. So we had to travel to Colorado, which I, rem was, I remember I talked to you right yeah, after that happened. Yeah. Know. Very unfortunate, you know, timing and, to, and during a pandemic and having to travel during a pandemic. And, um, but I wanted to make sure we had a chance to, to say goodbye, but that, that the, the view of the world and, you know, thank God I got to take my mom and dad to Venice and to Germany and to Austria and to Hawaii, you know, make their world bigger you know, they brought, they came here so that my siblings and I could be born here. So we, our lives could be different than theirs were. And so it felt really awesome to take them around to the world. So that's my point five is the Air Force really taught me and showed me, let me peek into how vast and amazing a world we have. So much discovery yet to do. And I will be forever grateful for that. Um, Graciela, is, is there a veteran nonprofit or individual whom you've worked with? or you've had experience with whom you'd like to mention? I was fortunate enough to become part of um, Veteran Women Igniting the Spirit of Entrepreneurship. Woo! Mouthful, V-Wise. It's part of the Institute of Military Veterans and Families at Syracuse. But okay. it is the part of, v of uh, IVMF that is all about helping women become entrepreneurs, women veterans become entrepreneurs. And in fact, our first uh Good night, Captain Mama book. We actually share revenue of those sales with VWISE. 
because there's direct mission alignment, you know, to support their work. It's a conference, it's online curriculum. And in non-pandemic years, we actually meet annually and actually more often than that quarterly to launch businesses, to, you know, our business just celebrated 10 years, Tanner. So I am now the mentor um, for women veterans starting their own businesses. So if they want to talk about, you know, operations or how you manage your marketing sales pipeline or launching it, whatever, right? We go and we actually teach content at this conference for women starting businesses. And then there's also a growth track once you've been in business for a while, but you want to scale or you want to open up a new market segment, we go and we coach them there as well. So I'm very happy to be part of that group. Um, And then also Bunker Labs. I was part of the Bunker Labs WeWork Veterans and Residents community. Uh, And so I got hosted in downtown San Francisco with nine other veteran entrepreneurs. And then we have a six-month adventure of bringing our networks together and then learning again more about how to be better entrepreneurs. So I, I, I will choose those two organizations to highlight because we're so entrepreneurial and it, you know, I teach a lot of student veterans now at universities with authentic personal branding and more and more, they're like, I want to brand myself as the founder of fill in the blank company that they're starting. The desire to create our own businesses. I think the pandemics, you know, all the job losses that we're seeing and again, the lack of security, that's really in the minds of our student veterans right now. Like, yeah, I'm getting my degree. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go work for Intel or Microsoft or whatever they want to do. But just like happened to me when I was working in Siemens, I had that little entrepreneurial bug already. And so they're already doing their branding, not only for job interviews, um, and positioning themselves to tell their stories, to get those interviews, you know, to cut through the noise, to get those interviews. But also more and more, I'm seeing them market themselves and brand themselves as founders of their own companies. And that just makes you so happy. That's just awesome. I think the digital age has fueled a lot of that too. Pandemic, digital age, uh, all these different social platforms. There's so many ways now to get your story out compared to 20 years ago. You're right. And so all of those things, you know, just like your resume, those are all marketing deliverables, right? Yeah, they're all tools, they're all deliverables, but there's so many new ones now. It's very exciting, but you got to have the substance, right? That's the whole thing. You know, if you're jumping on LinkedIn, setting up a profile and doing all this stuff, that's your selling, right? It's supposed to be your billboard, like to attract people's attention. That headline's supposed to be your billboard. But if you haven't done that work, of understanding what it is that you're even seeking or how you want to be perceived. What is the story that you want to tell to attract people to you? If you haven't done that, it's a lot harder to use all those platforms that exist. Noted. Noted. Um, and Gracie, we, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, is there anything else that I may have missed or that you think is important to share? You know, I really wanted to be able to, give examples, give an example of, you know, what, what is this, this personal branding we're talking about? You know, I I defined it, right. I defined what it is, is that, that authentic story that you tell to attract people to you. But what I really wanted to share Tanner is, you know, why, like, why does it matter? So what I've trained thousands of veterans with this workshop at universities. I've always focused on student veterans at universities and, the process that I teach, you know, they bring me in like if in a community college, they bring me in when the student veterans are going to be applying for four-year school because you have to market yourself to the admissions office, right? 
Sure. And so we do the the branding, authentic personal branding workshop so that they can position themselves as the candidate they absolutely must admit to university. Or, you know, the other one is they're going to grad school. And then I'm brought in also for professional development when they're trying to get their internships and, of course, full-time employment. But I wanted to share what that sounds like because what we launched in November, you know, with Brand Before Your Resume. By the way, Brand of Brand Before Your Resume, Brand is an acronym because we love acronyms. Okay. Brand means that you must brand, which means become relevant, authentic, noticeable, and differentiated before your resume. Okay. See? So market before your resume, right? Brand before your resume. So we made that into an acronym. And what we did here, it's this is the first marketing guidebook written by a veteran for the military community that features 25 plus personal branding examples created by military veterans. Okay. So it is pure inspiration to see what is, how is it that they talk about themselves, right? So I'll just share one with you that, um, that yeah. got him a job at Intel. Okay. This is up in Portland state, one of our clients. So he says, I'm Raul. He's a Marine Corps veteran, by the way. Rah. I'm Raul, lifelong technology tinkerer, the go-to person for family members, students, and faculty members when they get stuck understanding their technology. Is that a great opening? Absolutely. Like, yeah. You see this, this, he's like the go-to guy. As a young Marine, I was entrusted to repair electronics maintain aircraft to fly, and other flight line operations. Today, my curiosity as a self-motivated computer engineer has me programming in three different computer languages and building PCs for my family. My years as a role model, motivating young people and family members to pursue STEM education and careers, and my innovator mindset make me an outstanding candidate for the Intel Fill It Your Blank apprenticeship. That's personal branding. No one else is walking up to the table and introducing himself like that. And then for the women, I wanted to to share one from um, a woman that I trained up in University of Idaho. She said, this is very bold. I'm Kristen, Army veteran and domestic violence survivor. Woo! Okay, that's different. People usually don't start with that. But again, your audience, the audience that you're talking to is why you choose the words. And this is a very important part of branding. So I'm listening, you know, she says this and she continues. I'm a student pursuing a administration and medical records degree, building a loving home for my two boys. I'm determined to help empower others live their best life, achieve goals and dreams, no matter how big or small. I'm looking forward to serving your organization as a community partner and as a survivor mentor. See it tied into what she wanted to do. Bingo. And you know where she got hired? She is now working at a state level, you know, EDD department, so employment, but she's working with specifically in the return to work programs of women who are domestic violence survivors. So you don't get there without doing a whole lot of introspective thinking about who you are, what you've been, these battles, born the battle, right? What battles has she born that now she can take it forward? into her next chapter of her life. How does she position and brand herself? I'm so proud of her. She she got hired in the summer and she was able to buy a brand new house for her and her boys in Washington state. And that, that all happened very recently for her. I'm so proud of her. So Love that's that. what I do. That is what I do. I turn 
veterans who are amazing rock stars, but yet hesitant to talk about themselves because we're so humble and that's who we are. I help you adopt the marketing mindset and become epic storytellers of your own value. You talk about the marketing mindset. Now, I fully agree with you on that. And it's obvious that you help people with that. Um, what does it mean to you? Uh, what What is that marketing mindset? If you were to define that, what would that be? So the marketing mindset is conscious before you start talking, before you start writing, before you start putting it on your LinkedIn, before you start the resume cover letter. It's your audience. It's You might have heard the word psychographics, right? That's one of the things that Facebook's known for. What is a psychographic? It's basically is what does my audience care about? What motivates them? How are they getting evaluated? Like you ask questions about the people that I'm communicating with. What do I know about them? See, people think that marketing is self-promotion. It's not. Marketing always starts with the audience that you need to reach. Because, you know, earlier I said, you know, I defined what marketing was, you know, the creating and matching of a powerful, distinctive message to influence a specific audience to act. Okay. When you do that, then advertising becomes a vehicle to your marketing message, right? Do you have, do you have any small babies in your life in diapers? No. Okay. No, not yet. We're now we're now we're we're hopefully getting there, but not not as of today. No. Well, I, I asked that question because. That means that when a message about the quality of diapers is on your radio, your brain tunes it out, doesn't hear oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Because it literally doesn't apply to you, right? So so marketing is about, but but trust me, one day <laughs> when you're waiting for a baby, absolutely. all those messages are going to reach your brain, right? So, the, yeah. so the, the marketing begins with, who am I talking to? What do I know? What do they care about? And how can I reach them with my story, my uniqueness? That is the mindset. Okay. And, and the resume is part two. Here's the specifics of what I'm selling me as a product. This is, the, this is my product attributes. Now they're on this resume, but you will never get that opportunity to present your resume if you don't do the marketing. So the marketing mindset that I teach, and it's the repeatable process. Again, you can do it for when you're going to school, when you're an internship, any career transition, your first one, your second one, your third one, we know there's many, right? It's it's that ability to stop and say, okay, I know that I want to communicate with recruiters recruiting for, uh, let's say, uh, business aviation mechanic, Okay. That's what I'm going for. Now, I need to know what are they looking for? What do they care about? What do they respond to? So that means you have to know them, right? And so marketing begins with your audience and what they care about. And then you come back to yourself with the introspective work that you've done and say, what elements of my story match best? And how can I put powerful words and adjectives and something unique so yeah. that they hear me and they interview me for that business aviation mechanic role. That's the marketing mindset. This is why I really want this work that I'm doing and this unique marketing guidebook and all the examples written by veterans and the online course. I really want to get them into, you know, the TAP program, the, you know, the VA's chapter 36, the personalized career planning and guidance program, anywhere where we're doing personalized coaching yeah. for employment and yep, entrepreneurship. 
right? DOL, you know, SBA, I really want to get this work that I'm doing into those spaces because we don't have enough content in the curriculum written by veteran entrepreneurs. This, this has been great, Graciela. Um, appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on. Is there any party message you have for, for a veteran or anybody in the audience that might be listening to this, whether it be a VA employee or veteran or, or oh, you know. randomly clicked on this because it said author, whatever, your, your, your time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really important to me to honor the promise that I made to those two women veterans who helped me through the transition. Once I got hired by Siemens and you know, after I think it was probably a total of six months between getting out and getting, you know, signing this particular job offer letter. I went back to Julia who had started the group. So the Vietnam era veteran who had the group who led me and I went back to her and she said that you have no idea how proud I am of you. This is exactly what we wanted to help you land on your feet and this, you know, great paying job. And I'm so proud of you. And you got yourself a bonus and she was just going on and on. And I said, but how do I ever repay you? for what you've done for me, because yeah, I'm, I'm not lost in flailing and sleeping on someone's couch. Cause I can't get hired. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I, that you, you put me here, you know, and she's like, just pay it forward. Just train more veterans to land on their feet in the kind of role that is deserving of their talent. Just do that. And, and please focus on the women. Okay. So I, I serve, all veterans. I've served veterans, you know, through, with this work through you know, the people literally living in VA homes coming through out of rehab programs. They've been in corrections facilities. They've been in, you name it. And now they're turning a new leaf. So another transition, right? And then I'll come in at a veteran serving organization and I'll do this workshop and there will be people in tears because everybody has challenges, stories, struggles, but we need to get really good as a community individually to help each other turn that new leaf and say, yeah, that happened back there. And now going forward, this is the story that I'm now telling the world so that I can land in the next awesome phase of my life. And if we can do that for everybody transitioning out of the military or somebody who just got laid off and they have to do the transition again, as effectively as we've been able to do it, people coming out of you know rehab programs, okay, if we can remind each other of how much we have left to give the world and then teach the process to articulate that so that that magic happens. I think we're all going to be better off. And that's what I do. That's the promise that I made to Julia. Because if I didn't have that guidance by these trusted women who had walked this path before me, I really don't know how long it would have taken for me to find the job that I knew I wanted. And I bet what would have happened to her is what happens to too many of us is you take the first offer that you get, which has nothing to do with your values. And then you're going to be unhappy. And then what is it? 50% of veterans leave the first job that they take after the military and within a year, it's not yeah. a good number, right? Because why does that happen? Because they didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to get mentored to the match, to the match of their values and their talent in a place that's going to honor them. And that's the promise that I made to Julie is that I will always keep doing that because it is so important that we land in the next great place. I've lived it. I'm the success story. And I got there because of other veterans.
No, uh, no ad for you this week. This uh, episode was pretty long as it is. Uh, I tried to cut as much. I tried to cut down Garcia's story, but as you can tell, uh, there was there wasn't much to cut. It's pretty incredible. You can find more information about Graciela at gracetiscareño-sato.com. On the site, there is an About Graciela link. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, a veteran is highlighted by our digital team with a blog on blogs.va.gov and with a post on all of our social media platforms. You can submit your own Veteran of the Day by emailing a short write-up and a couple of photos to newmedia at va.gov. As a U.S. Navy officer and NASA astronaut, Wendy B. Lawrence spent over 20 years of her life serving her country, both on planet Earth and in outer space. Born into a naval family in Jacksonville, Virginia, her father was a U.S. Navy vice admiral. In 1977, she graduated from Fort Hunt High School in Alexandria, Virginia, and she followed in her father's footsteps, enrolling at the Naval Academy. She earned her Bachelor's of Science degree in Ocean Engineering, and she later achieved the designation of Naval Aviator in July of 1982. She flew aircraft throughout the most of the 1980s, logging more than 1,500 hours as a helicopter pilot in six different types of helicopters. Lawrence served on several shipboard deployments to the North Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, and Kenya. While stationed at Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 6, she became one of the first two female helicopter pilots to make a long deployment to the Indian Ocean as part of a carrier battle group. Lawrence completed a master's degree in ocean engineering from a dual program offered by MIT and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, graduated in 1988. In 1990, she became a physics instructor and novice women's crew coach at the Naval Academy. In March of 92, NASA selected her to become an astronaut, the first female Naval Academy graduate to earn the distinction. Completing a one-year training course, she became a mission specialist. She went on to take part in four space flights, logging more than 1,200 hours in space from 1995 to 2005. Lawrence's technical assignments included flight software verification in the shuttle's avionics integration laboratory, astronaut office assistant training officer, director of operations for NASA at the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center in Star City, Russia, and astronaut office representative for space station training and crew support. Lawrence retired from NASA in 2006 and now works part-time at Space Camp at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, informing the public about NASA's spaceflight program informing the public about NASA's spaceflight programs and participating in STEM education programs. Navy veteran Wendy B. Lawrence. Thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle veteran of the week, you can. Just send an email to me at podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle veteran of the week. If you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, Pinterest, 
LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you all again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we die another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back, raining down there, punching that clock. Get them, boys, I'm laying down. Machine gun, bullets fly day and night, brain. Simplify, do or die, another campaign. Here we go, lock and load, 0331, lug a thousand rounds, and I ain't bringing back one. We had just launched the first uh, bilingual children's book and I was doing an assembly at a school. I had been asked by the the counselor who brought me in. He says, we're a Title I school and, you know, 80% of the kids are learning English. So they speak another language and then they're learning English. So um, I said, okay, awesome. And it was going to be a Veterans Day assembly. So see, how cool is that, right? And so I come in and I asked, um, you know, the kids, I, I said, how many of you would like me to do this assembly in Spanish? So all the kids' hands go up. And how many of you would like me to do this in English? And the teacher's hands go up. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this entire assembly in Spanish. And I did. Interesting. So projected the pictures. And I could do a little bit of English here and there, but I, you know, I was there for the kids, right? So I did the whole thing in Spanish and we project all the images up on the screen. So all the kids could see all the illustrations. And I, you know, picture walked the story. At the end, we did some Q&A. And then at the very, very end, you know, the kids get up to leave. And so right in front of me is the kindergarten class, the, the tiniest kids. And they stand up and as they're leaving to file out, this little girl just kind of stops right in front of me and like, you know, the kids run into her you know, because she just suddenly stopped, right? <laughs> but she had something she was going to say. So she reaches up and she grabs my sleeve and she pulls on my sleeve tanner and she says, Capitana Mama, yo también quiero volar aviones como tú. Which means, Captain Mama, I want to fly the airplanes like you did. And I just, this is my first event after publishing my first children's book. I mean, it's been out like two months, right? And I just kind of dropped down on my knee because I just, I was feeling like, oh my God, like the validation of the work I'm doing is happening right now, right? Like it was chills. So I got down on my knee and I grabbed her little hand and I said, you know what? And yep, I said it all in Spanish. But what I told her is, I said, I know you're going to learn all the English, reading, math, science, everything you need to learn to fly airplanes or anything else that you want to do. I said, and don't you ever let anybody tell you that you can't. And she's smiling and smiling. And then finally the teacher's like, okay, come on, let's go. But I love that she was so inspired by the presentation that she stopped 
and didn't care if she was holding everybody up and <laughs> she, had, she had something she wanted to say, right? Yeah. That will never leave me. 